You are listening to sermon audio from Coggin Avenue Baptist Church. If you'd like to know more about us, check us out online at www.cogginchurch.org. Good morning. How's everyone doing this morning? Good, good. It's great to see you. Great to be here with you. Uh, Let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, we're grateful to be here together, gathered. Um, We're we're grateful to be singing about the the beauty of your word and and how um, here in in this book are the words of life. Uh, I'm reminded of the story of the gospel when uh, many of the crowds left Jesus and he turned to his disciples and he said, will you go away also? And, And Peter responded, where else can we go? For you alone have the words of life. And I pray that you would bring us now to your word with that same kind of posture of desperation to hear you speak, because you and you alone have the words of life, and we thank you, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, uh, it's been a while since I've been able to be with you, so there's a lot of new faces I see almost every week, and so let me introduce myself. My name's Daniel Attaway. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Coggin, so I help oversee all of our um, small group and learning environments and, uh, and our membership process. So if you go through that, you will spend some, some time with me. And I love getting to uh, know new folks as they get to come, uh, come in through the door. Um, I'm married to Emily, and we have four wonderful children. Bella, who's almost 13, which is inc- crazy to me that I'm about to have a 13-year-old. Uh, Angelica, who is 11. Alex, who's 9. And we have a little seven-month-old that was, uh, we welcomed in October. Uh, her name's Penelope Joy. And uh, fitting for the book that we're in because this is a book about choosing joy. And, and really, the heartbeat of Philippians comes from our text today. And, and Paul makes this incredible statement that you've probably heard a million times in the church. You've probably read through the book of Philippians many times. But he says this phrase, for me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And this idea serves as the basis for the Christian's joy. This is what underlies everything else, that to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For most of us, we recognize joy in our lives when things are on the up and up, right? When... uh, Maybe you're on a date with that person that you love, your spouse or otherwise. Maybe it's uh, when it's raining outside and you're on the couch with a good book. Can I get an amen on that? (laughs) Or maybe it's as a family, you're gathered around your table, you're eating dinner, and you're playing games. Now, that's not my house because game time is all out war, but maybe that's for you that's, that's joy. That's joy to have the family around the table playing games. But in my house, if someone doesn't go to bed crying, we haven't had game night. So, but just by way of reminder, while joy does come in these moments, joy does come in these moments where everything seems right, let's remember where Paul is in this moment. Where is he? Prison. And when someone who is wrongfully imprisoned writes a letter to you about choosing joy, you should listen. You should listen. He knows a thing or two about 
joy. And, and in the previous section, Paul told us why he was in prison. Was it because he didn't pay his taxes? No. Was it because he was inciting a violent insurrection against Rome? No. Why is he there? Because he was preaching the gospel. He's in prison for preaching that Jesus is the true king of the world, not Caesar, not the guy on the throne who, who holds himself up as the king of the world, but, but Jesus. He is the rightful king of the world. And Paul goes on from there to, to celebrate the fact that he's in prison. He's celebrating the fact that he's in prison because now everyone knows. They know why I'm here. They know I'm not violent. They know anymore. He, he once was, but they, they know I'm not violent. They, they know I pay my taxes. I'm a good citizen. Everyone knows that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. It's now even becoming known throughout the Roman Imperial Guard. They are even learning that the reason I'm here right now is for the defense of the gospel. And worldly wisdom would tell Paul that, that these, this imperial guard is his obstacle to the gospel going out. So he should want that obstacle removed by any means necessary. That's what worldly wisdom says. But Paul doesn't think that way. Paul doesn't see it that way and finds joy in the fact that Jesus' name is becoming known to the imperial guard, even if that means suffering for him. He's happy with that. He's good with that. So while Paul is imprisoned, he can rejoice and celebrate because Jesus' name is becoming known. And because his name is becoming known, so is his power, his love, and his grace. So the question that I believe this confronts us with this morning, that if we just reflect on that phrase, to live as Christ and to die as gain, what is it that forms the basis of your life? What is the thing at the bottom that if you mine down past everything else, every other small J, joy in your life, what is the bedrock that when you get down to the very bottom, what is it that forms the foundation of your life? What is it that drives your decision making? How you spend your money, where you go to college, who you marry. What is it that forms these decisions? What, what hobbies do you give your time and your effort to? How do you relate with others? And then even more seriously, because this is what happens whenever we're squeezed in life, but, but what is that foundation when you get that cancer diagnosis or a loved one is sick? What is your life built on that will sustain you when you lose your job? What, what, what is your life built on when you have a wayward son or daughter that, that you will come back to that will form your foundation? Because here's the thing. If you spend your life being driven by the desire for money or possessions or security or comfort or fill in the blank, when tragedy hits, you reflexively will turn to whatever that thing is. And it will be shown to be what it is. Nothingness. Nothing that can sustain you in the heat of suffering. So all of our small j joys have a foundation. All joys have a foundation except one. You, you mine down to the bottom. It's like whenever you have a conversation with a child and you say something, they're like, well, why? 
And then you give an answer, and why, and why, and why. And then you're like into like deep philosophical conversations just for asking why over and over and over again. So let's imagine this. Let's just play out this, this little thought exercise. Let's say that you and I are sitting down and we're talking together, and you share with me the desire to buy a boat. You want to buy a boat. I'm like, okay, that's, boats are fun, all right? So let's talk about it. Just just know that if you were to come and tell me that you wanted to buy a boat, I would not ask these questions. It's just for exercise, all right? So why, why do you want to buy a boat, all right? So why, why is that there? Why is that desire there? And there are a ton of answers you could give to this, but most likely the answer is going to be because it's fun, amen? I mean, boats are fun. Boat owners are like, you've never owned a boat, have you? Right? The best day of boat ownership is when you buy it and sell it, right? So, um, because it's fun. Okay, well, you mentioned fun. So why is fun important to you? So we mind down. Why, why is fun important to you? And you might say, I want my kids to remember good times as a family. Okay, okay, that's a good reason. But let's keep going. So family memories seem to be something that's important to you. But why? Why are they important to you? So we're mining down another level. And you might say, because life is short... And time with my kids is even shorter. And I want them to pass on. I want to give them a legacy of some kind. I want to be with my children. Give them a legacy so that then they pass that on to the next seat. Now we're like deeper. It's not just about the boat anymore. And we're getting close. We're getting close. So you talked about that legacy. What is that legacy? What's the thing down underneath it all? You said you wanted to pass that on to your kids so that they would do the same, but what is it? And your answer to that question will reveal what the basis of your life is. Do you exist to make much of yourself? Or do you exist to make much of Christ? And your desire to buy a boat, you see, is an avenue that you can multiply Jesus in your kids and raise them in the fear of the Lord so that they do the same with their kids. Do you see how we went from simple desire down to the bedrock of what is the basis of your life? All of our decisions have this, that if you will just go down these levels, you will find the foundation somewhere. Why do I want this? Why do I desire this? What's ultimately motivating me? And is it a desire to see yourself exalted? Or is it a desire to see Christ exalted in everything that you do? So what is the basis of your life? This is the question that's before us in our text today. So with that, let's read, uh, if you're already with me in the book of Philippians, um, let's read in Philippians 1. And we're going to start in 19 through 26. And I'm going to back up and just read the last part of 18 there along with uh, 19. Okay, let's read together. As Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. It is as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed But with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. So, remember, Paul has just talked about how he is rejoicing, that though he is in prison, the gospel is advancing, and in that he rejoices. So now he's going to pivot and give another reason for his rejoicing. He continues to rejoice by revealing what's at the bottom of his joy. What what is it down there that if he mind past his outer circumstances down to the bottom, what is the thing that forms the basis of his life? And the first thing that we see here this morning is that forms the basis of Paul's life is he has the strong assurance that he will be delivered. He has a strong assurance of deliverance. Now, there are two aspects to deliverance that we can talk about. Two levels, kind of. One is purely kind of on a physical plane. That when you think about being delivered in Paul's case, it seems like de- deliverance would look like him getting out of prison, not being executed. That would be deliverance. And yes, that sort of deliverance is one of the meanings that we can pull from this. And if you look at verse 26, that does seem to be what Paul is saying, uh, 25 and 26. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. But if you back up and you read through, it, it is not at all clear in Paul's mind that he's making, out of the, making it out of prison alive. He, he wavers back and forth. His whole purpose in bringing up life and death is that he doesn't actually know for sure which one he's going to face. Is he going to ultimately be released or will he ultimately be executed? So on the surface, it appears that Paul's meaning is being released from prison, not being executed. But the second aspect of deliverance here is the idea of preservation. That Paul will ultimately, his faith, his foundation in Jesus will ultimately be preserved. And so you can hear it in this, that that's a passive act. Paul is, is, is giving it to the Lord, that the Lord is the one who is going to preserve him. It's not by his own might and his own strength, but he's being preserved by, by Christ. So as you read through these verses, you can see how Paul's not certain that this will turn out for his deliverance as in getting out of prison, but it 100% will turn out for his preservation. 100%. He is certain that he will be preserved because whether he is set free or whether he is executed, he's delivered. He's delivered. Now for us, that's a little bit upside down, but Paul ties, it gets a little bit more dense here, Paul ties his adversity, his imprisonment, to his deliverance. So let me clarify what that means. Paul is not simply saying that I'm going to be delivered from this adversity. But he's saying that this adversity will result in my deliverance. Do you hear the difference? He's not simply saying that the Spirit will come and the Spirit will rescue me out of my trouble, 
But he's saying that in my trouble, regardless of the outcome, I will be delivered. His outcome does not dictate his deliverance. The outcome has nothing to do with his deliverance. It doesn't matter whether he gets out of prison or dies for his faith. Either way, he is delivered. Now, let's back up. Because Paul makes a statement about how he sees this deliverance coming to fruition. Look at what he says. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Do you see what he just did there? Where he put together, the deliverance will occur, the how it will be accomplished is through the prayers of the people and the Holy Spirit. Both. The prayers of the people and the Holy Spirit. This will turn out for my deliverance. Do you see how Paul understands the role of prayer in his deliverance? Because for us, being in Paul's situation, we might be tempted to say that God and God alone works for this. And ultimately, yes, the credit goes to the Lord for our deliverance. And yet, he ties the people's prayers to what God is ultimately going to do. That the means by which Paul will ultimately be delivered is a pairing of both the people of God and the Spirit of God. And my question for us is, um, I, can, I can answer yes, I can be honest about this, but have you ever allowed your belief that, um, that God is in control of all things lead you into prayerlessness? Because God's going to do what God's going to do, right? He's all powerful. He's all wise. So God's going to do what God's going to do. And we might have this deep-seated notion that maybe prayer doesn't really do anything because God's going to do what God is going to do. But look at how Paul understands prayer here. It's prayer in conjunction with the help of the Spirit that will result in Paul's deliverance. Paul clearly sees these prayers of the people as essential in forming the foundation of his joy. And prayer is the place where the love and enjoyment of God is cultivated. It's the ongoing rapport between the Father and his children. And I can tell you from personal experience how the prayers of the people have worked out for me. That from the moment that I came to this church about nine years ago, this church has prayed for me. You don't know this, but when, uh, when Emily and I first came back to Brownwood, and I came on staff at Coggin, I came on part-time, I had just been, uh, I had just missed a job that I really deeply, desperately wanted. It was, it was out in Longview, Texas. I was super excited about it. I was, I was really hopeful. It was a great church. I was excited to, to be a part of a church like that. And, and when I didn't get the job, I was crushed. I was crushed for months. I, I carried that with me. And, and kind of, uh, at the time, was, was really just torn up by that. But from the moment that I stepped back into this family that I so deeply love here at Coggin, you didn't know this, but your love and support and prayers for us as we reacclimated to Brownwood healed my heart of that hurt. It healed my heart of that hurt. And that's not the only time uh, when, when Emily and I welcomed our, our kids into our home and into our lives. 
your prayers and your care for us in that season got me through. It was incredibly stressful. I can tell you the story one-on-one later. In 2016, Emily was hospitalized for, for about a month and, uh, with really serious health issues. And your prayers and your help, people were going by and mowing our yard and helping with our kids. And I mean, your love and support, this, this type of thing that Paul is talking about here where the love and the prayers of the people in conjunction with the Spirit turn out for his deliverance. I've experienced that because I've been delivered from despair, from hopelessness because of you. Because of you. So the way that Paul sees his faith and what some of these experiences for me have done, it it, it has shown me how interdependent our faith is on one another. I know we like to think ourselves as lone rangers. You know, we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're like John Wayne, you know, just powerful, got everything together. We're not. Let's just be honest, right? Right? We need each other. The life of the, of the faith community is essential for forming the foundation of our joy, not optional. Which is why... Here at Coggin, we want to continuously call people deeper into fellowship and community and living a life that doesn't hide in the shadows. Because you cannot see the, you will never be able to say to live as Christ, to die as gain, if you don't see the fellowship of other believers as essential to the forming of your joy. You won't. What Paul sees here is that the people of God, in conjunction with the Spirit of God, are the means by which Paul will be preserved. So knowing that we are secure in Christ, held fast by his spirit, and adopted by the Father, helps form us to be able to stand like Paul did and say to live as Christ and to die as gain. So this is the first thing, that Paul has this assurance of his deliverance. But this spills over into another point here. He states that his assurance of deliverance or preservation results in this confident, eager hope that he has. A hope that he will not be ashamed. So mark that. Paul's number one hope isn't that he would be rescued from death, but that he would not be ashamed, but rather honor Christ in his body, whether by life or by death. That was his ultimate hope. Not deliver me from my trouble, but regardless of what happens, may I stand firm, assured, not ashamed of Jesus and the gospel, and declare the truth of the message that Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, he will come again. Paul's hope isn't in his 401k. Paul's hope is not in his kids' sports team. Paul's hope is not in his relationship status, his wealth, or his health. At the end of this book, he's going to say, I've known the opposite ends of the spectrum on all of these things. I know how to be rich. I know how to be poor. And in every situation, I've learned to be content. Simply, this is Paul's desire. And whatever comes my way, may Christ be honored in my life or my death. So Paul's hope is firmly fixed on the person of Jesus, who at great cost to himself endured the cross, despising its shame. Not because he needed us in order to fill him, but because out of the love that exists between the Father, Son, and the Spirit, Jesus came 
to save. And it's because of the goodness of Jesus that Paul's hope is eager and resilient. It's ironic, isn't it? Like you would think, all right, Paul, you are imprisoned. You are um, uh, shamed by people. You're in chains. You're on, you're going to be on trial and possibly executed. When is the moment that you would start to rethink all of your commitments and life, life decisions? I think it would probably be here. I think it would be about this moment. And you know, for, for me, I really hope that my heart would be like Paul's here. This resilient, this dug in. Because Paul digs his heels in all the more. He doesn't waver on who he is in Christ. He, he digs his heels in all the more. So you would think awaiting this trial, this possible death sentence, it might make you second guess some things. You might think, I thought Jesus came to give me the abundant life. This doesn't seem very abundant. This doesn't seem very fun. I thought this is what Jesus came to do, was give the abundant life. Yes, but the abundant life is not something in addition to Jesus. When Jesus came to offer the abundant life, what he's saying is, I'm giving you myself. It's not Jesus plus something. It is Jesus simply giving us himself. And so there's this sort of gospel stubbornness that exists in Paul. He just digs his heels in all the more. And it's like he is absolutely untouchable. His eager hope is not to be ashamed, to honor Christ in his body, whether by life or by death. And suffering has this opposite effect for the Christian. And I've seen it. I've seen it here in this congregation that what the enemy intends for evil and to uproot you, God intends for your good and to further plant you. How frustrating it must be for the enemy to think that throwing this your way would be the thing that uproots you, but instead, the Father uses it to further plant you. And this is where it ultimately leads up for Paul. And he says, for me, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Is this true of you? Is this true of me? I've asked myself that question all week long. It's an incredible statement in its very essence. To live as Christ means, do I care more for the glory of Christ or for my own glory? Is experiencing his presence and power in the everyday, even the mundane, even as you're making lunches for your kids before they go to school, even as you prepare dinner night in and night out, even as you go to your job and it's kind of the same thing on repeat, is your soul's deep ache to know the presence and power of Jesus in your everyday life is for you to live Christ. Do you want him above all of your personal hopes and desires? And I'm not saying that your personal hopes and desires are empty and meaningless or bad in and of themselves, but the order here matters. The order here matters. Do you want to spend your life making much of yourself or do you want to be freed to such a degree that you make much and delight in making much of Jesus? So why should we want this? 
Because when this forms the basis of your life, what can really harm you? When for you to live is Christ and to die is gain, what can really harm you? What can really happen to you that would rob you of Jesus? So think about this. Paul, standing before this trial. Let's just play this out in our minds. Paul, standing before this trial. They would say, Paul, you have been found guilty of inciting an insurrection against Rome and against Caesar. And he would say, it's okay. I've been found not guilty in a higher court. Do as you will. So we sentence you to death, Paul. To die is gain. I get to be with my Savior. Okay, then, well, since you have a death wish, we'll, we'll see to it that you live. He's like, hey, to live is fruitful labor for me. To live is Christ. I get to keep pouring into the churches. That, that's fine, too. Okay, we will strip you of all of your possessions, and we will exile you to the furthest corner of the earth. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And Jesus has promised to never leave or forsake me. Then we are going to make you suffer. They're light and momentary afflictions. And they're not worth comparing to the weight of glory that awaits me. I mean, there is nothing you can do to the person who for themselves says to live as Christ and to die as gain. That person is untouchable by the enemy, by the world, by the flesh untouchable. So if you were like me, you probably look at this and think, that's not attainable. That type of life is not attainable. That, like that, we're talking about Paul here. Okay, remember this. Paul was basically a terrorist who terrorized early Christians. Your starting point is way better than his. It's way better than his. Who can really say to live as Christ? Let me give you an example. One of my favorite people in the world who is just with us, Stacy Powers. And I could I could give examples right here in this room. But from the moment I met Stacy, it was an instant bond and connection. She's been like a mother in the faith to me. And to watch her suffer the loss of her husband, and to be on the mission field with her husband, to come home because he's going to die, to bury him, and then to say, you know what? I know I could stay here, and no one would blame me for it. No one would blame me for it. But I'm going back to the people to finish the work that Jeff and I started, because for me to live is Christ. I'm still breathing. For him, death was gain. But I'm still here. I'm still breathing. I'm going back. I'm going back. So parents, for you in the room, when you stand outside your kid's door at night and you plead for the Lord to save them, or maybe your kids are moved out of the house and you get on your knees in the evening times and you, and you plead for the Lord to guide them in wisdom, what you're saying is to live as Christ. When you prepare meals in your home to welcome your neighbors in to share table fellowship with you so that you can build relationships with them and maybe share the gospel with them, what you are saying is for me to live as Christ. This table 
is not my own. This home that I live in is not my own. This family and my time is not my own. But everything I have is laid bare and used because for me to live is Christ. So students, if there are any students in the room, when you do your best at school, when you don't cheat the system, when you work as to the Lord, what you are saying is for to me to live is Christ. So becoming the type of person who desires to see Christ honored in our body, whether by life or by death, this is the norm for the Spirit-indwelled Christian. This is a supernatural work that the Spirit does in the Christian to bring them to this point. Now, are we all going to arrive at that at the same speed? And Probably not. But this is the aim, that this would be so formed, Christ would be so formed in your heart that this, this is what you desire and this is where the, the Spirit is taking you. So church, again, let me ask, what is at the bottom of your joy? What serves as the basis of your life? How would you fill in the blank to live is what? How do we see to it that the answer that we give to that is honestly, for me, to live as Christ? It's really easy to say that with our lips, and then our lives model a very different story. But the story of your life is actually what fills in that blank. Not what you say with your lips. But the desire is for what you do in the body and what you say with the lips to be aligned. For these things to be aligned. And so here's one thing that I hope you hear. This type of life where you are able to honestly stand and say, for me to live is Christ. You don't stumble into that. You don't stumble into that way of life. You don't wake up one day after a life filled chasing money, chasing sex, chasing power, and then one day wake up and say, for me to live is Christ, and it's true. That just does not happen. It is a lifetime of coming and coming again to Jesus and being in his presence. So the very first thing this morning, just by way of application and call and response, is this. Whether you're a believer or a non-believer in here, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. If you don't know the Lord, here is your opportunity and your call to know Him. And it's not the only one. Later, the Spirit may work in your life as you are about to go to bed at night. So there's nothing special about this moment. But maybe the Spirit is calling and saying, come. For some of you, being able to say to live as Christ means you need Him to deliver and save you from all of the false foundations that you've built your life on. You need that deliverance. Right now, the Spirit may be prompting you to come to Jesus, and yet there's a war within you of where to place your treasure. What am I going to value over everything else? What's going to form the foundation of my life? And this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Whoever hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the wind and waves came, it fell, and mighty was its fall. So come to Jesus. Whether you're a believer or not, this message is for all of us. When you walk out of these doors today, you will be bombarded with 10,000 different things that you can put your hope and your treasure in. And it will be alluring. It will be alluring. 
alluring. But living for yourself in your own glory only leads to that mighty crash, that mighty fall. So, church, I've witnessed many of you come to Jesus in the worst of times. When, again, we would have maybe all understood if, if we saw a, a crisis of faith in you and you, in your faith kind of took a hit. But what I have witnessed in many of you is the opposite. The opposite. That the suffering that you endure hardens your hope, makes it more sure, more steadfast. This week I sat around the table with a couple and prayed and listen to them share their heartache of something that they know that the Lord is calling them into that is going to be difficult. And they, were, they wept because they didn't have family support in their obedience to Jesus. And I just wanted to affirm, your church family is here to support you in this obedience. But for them, as they sat, what I heard them saying, though they, they didn't know what I was preaching on this Sunday, what they were saying with their lives is for for us to live as Christ. So the first thing, for for many of us here, it might be come to Jesus. And maybe for some of us, we've been walking with Jesus for a while, but we've strayed. Here's the good news about straying from Jesus. It's another opportunity to come to Him. If your mind has strayed by distraction and you begin chasing other things, here's the good news of that. It's another opportunity for you to return. So come to him. But for many of us, for all of us, another thing is simply to cultivate an awareness of Jesus in our everyday life. As I said earlier, prayer is this ongoing rapport between God and his people. And I think one of the problems that we have in prayer, I don't know about you, I struggle sometimes in prayer. I struggle. My mind goes other places. I want to know if the Mavs are winning game seven today. Not many amens there, okay? Spurs fans, it's okay, all right? But here's what prayer is. Learning to enjoy the presence of God. Most of the time when we think about prayer, we think about that list that we're praying through. And that is part of it. So don't forsake that. I'm not saying leave that behind. But C.S. Lewis has this great line where he talks about prayer. And he says, prayer in the sense of petition, that is asking for things, is a very small part of it. And that's where many of us stop, is that petition. We stop at petition. And what happens is when our petition isn't answered either immediately or it's answered with no, what's our assumption? Prayer doesn't work. But if your heartbeat in prayer is to be with Jesus, there's no working or not working. It simply is. Lewis goes on to say that the enjoyment and the vision and the presence of God is the bread and wine of prayer. It's the bread and wine, the sweet and savory aspect. It's what makes prayer what it is, being with Jesus. And it's impossible for you and I to be able to honestly say to live is Christ if we do not know how to enjoy the presence of Christ. We must cultivate our awareness and our ability to enjoy the presence of Christ. So here's how this looks for me. And this is a way to practice prayer in a way that's focused on enjoying the presence of God and 
Pastor Todd talks about life on a three-by-five. Pastor Billy talks about plan time place. There's all kinds of different ways that you can approach this. But for me, I have a reminder on my, on, on my phone three times a day to stop and to enjoy the presence of God. And in the morning, my focus is simply silence before him and remembering who I am in light of him. That I wouldn't try that day to live into some version of me that's not true, but I would simply be who God has called me to be. And I read his word, and I, and I pray and meditate on it. And, the, and I have another alert that goes off about midday. And here, I just focus on laying whatever cares and concerns I have at his feet. Just want to lay this here. And then in the evening, it's just about reflecting on the day. What am I grateful for? What did I see God move in? How did, what was the conversation that I had with one of my kids that, that was a spiritual conversation or with a neighbor? And in the in-between, all I'm trying to do is stay aware of the Spirit in every moment. As I'm driving from point A to point B, eyes open, alert. Now, do you think I'm perfect at this? No. More often than not, I, I miss some of these alerts. I hit, all right, skip. I'll, I'll admit that. But this is the way that I'm trying to cultivate the awareness that Jesus is active, that he's present to me, that he's present to us. There's nothing earth-shattering about these moments. But what they do is they build in me an awareness and dependence on Jesus that must occupy any life that is going to say for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. So church, there's much at stake here. Our joy, our satisfaction in the Lord, there's a lot at stake And if prayer is the place where the enjoyment of God is cultivated, then prayerlessness is the place where love of the world is cultivated. You're on one of those two trajectories, and you don't get to straddle them. You are on one of those two paths. Cultivating an awareness of Jesus that leads to a life that says, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Or not cultivating that awareness and just being led by the way and desires of your flesh and what we read back in when we did Galatians, to sow to the flesh is to reap the flesh. That is what will come out of your life. So to live as Christ, to die as gain. I pray for us that we would be a people who can say that honestly, who can, who can say with our mouths and with the way that we practice our lives for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. So let's go to the Father and ask him to give us this heart. Would you do that with me? Thank you for listening to this episode of our Coggin Church podcast. We exist to make disciples by leading people to connect with God, with others, through service to the world. For more information about Coggin, visit us at www.cogginchurch.org.